Today we have with us Azam Wan Hashim, researcher at Ideas, to discuss the biggest and latest news pieces that affect us here in Malaysia. All right, we are joined by Azam this morning, researcher from Ideas for Front Page. Good morning, Azam. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for Front Page. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Have you been good? I, I've been very good. Great. All right, let's get to our first article. Recent Auditor General's report uh, reported that China's military actually encroached into Sabah and Sarawak waters in the South China Sea 89 times from 2016 to 2019. Now, um, Foreign Minister Datuk Sri Hishamuddin Hussein said that he fears that any little incident or accident that happens on the South China Sea could lead to war. And since we, Malaysia, we're part of the South China Sea, what can our government do to prevent these incidents from happening again? Um, well, I think Malaysia as an individual country, uh, you know, coming against China and their claims over the South China Sea, I think uh, individually we don't really have much uh, ability to really uh, contest these things. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Malaysia has uh, the sovereignty over uh, the waters. There are some territory uh, that's within the sovereignty of Malaysia that's within dispute uh, uh, because of uh, China's claims over these uh, uh, lands. But I think internationally, the convention that applies is the the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which is a uh, uh, a 1982 international agreement that kind of defines the rights of countries to to the world's oceans, depending on on, on the, the location of the ocean. Mm. Uh, it also kind of uh, demarcates uh, stretches of waters uh, that are exclusive uh, economic zones where uh, countries are given the right to exclusively tap on on the the economic resources of, of, of these oceans, you know, uh, fish, uh, fuel. Uh, so this UN convention sets out kind of the legal framework within which all activities within the ocean and the seas must be carried out. Mm. Um, so this is kind of like the international convention. Um, but, you know, against such a large superpower like China, uh, Malaysia as an individual state um, doesn't really have much power uh, when it comes to these kind of uh, disputes. Um, When you look at it regionally, this is where kind of ASEAN plays a larger role. You know, uh, uh, most of the ASEAN states are within this disputed territory. And if they kind of, uh, you know, band together as one and and kind of uh, negotiate on these processes as a group, then they have more power to really, uh, uh, you know, contest any international issues, any issues over sovereignty. But I think as an individual country, Malaysia doesn't really have much. I think the most important thing here is for Malaysia to remain neutral mm-hmm. within, you know, in the foreground of all these issues is a battle between two uh, uh, major powers. Um, you know, on the one side, you have China's, you know, claim of the Nine Dash Line, you know, obviously their influence with the Belt and Road Initiative here in ASEAN. But on the other side is also uh, kind of the American claim um, 
of having free and open, uh, you know, Indo-Pacific area, uh, free for movement, free for uh, 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 kind of, I guess, military movement. So in the foreground, there's these two kind of like ideological battles, and it's important for Malaysia as an individual country to kind of remain neutral and not really go into these issues of uh, China versus the U.S. To not side uh, anyone, I guess. Correct, yes. Uh, so ultimately, it really goes down to uh, kind of the values of the rule of law, you know, the U.N. conventions over the waters. Um, but yes. But with 89 incidences, didn't the U.N. see this coming much earlier on? I mean, uh, this this isn't really the first time these kinds of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, incidences have occurred in the past. Uh, I think in 2016, uh, there was an uh, international arbitration tri- tribunal, uh, which kind of invalidated China's uh, historical claim to the waters. Uh, this tribunal was based uh, ultimately on this uh, UN convention, but uh, China just simply refused to kind of participate in this case and kind of dismiss the ruling. Uh, I think in recent years, China transformed, you know, seven uh, disputed uh, reefs into uh, kind of military missile protected island bases. Mm. Um, And, you know, it it continues to develop them in ways that have sparked protests and alarmed uh, uh, kind of rival states. Um, But Again, nothing has really happened. And uh, in more recently, in recent months, uh, China has come under fire for uh, what rival claimants said that was uh, aggressive actions in the disputed waters. Uh, so, you know, this isn't really the first time that these kind of things have happened. But what we see is that there's not really uh, much repercussions that China faces, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, formally. There's obviously like these kind of uh, soft geopolitical pressures that can be exerted, but um, you know, coming from Malaysia specifically, there's definitely not going to be any repercussions. Um, uh, like from the region, there might be additional pressure, but again, uh, Malaysia is a small country. We're a strong ally to China. Uh, China's uh, um, influence is a really important factor in this whole geopolitical uh, issue here. Um, And I don't think that there will be any repercussions of these 89 incidences of encroachment by China. All right, let's get to our second article. Drunk drivers will face stiffer penalties once the cabinet approves amendments to the law. So will these harsher penalties deter driving under the influence, Azam, you think? Uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, they will. Uh, so the penalties will increase, you know, uh, stricter, uh, longer jail times, longer times that uh, the license will be revoked. Um, I think the harsher penalties as a matter of deterrence will at the end of the day matter in the sense that uh, it increases the, the perceived punishment for, for doing the crime, in this case, uh, driving under the influence. And therefore, uh, this will decrease kind of uh, an individual's intention to commit the crime because 
that by nature will also mean the intention to, uh, uh, you know, um, inflict the punishment onto themselves. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in your opinion, between the enforcement of law and mm. education or, or social responsibility, what would be a better deterrent? Well, that's a good point because another important aspect um, on deterrence is also on the legal enforcement side. So because the, the level of perceived certainty of punishment uh, also has a strong uh, effect on deterrence of a crime, um, I think citing a study, uh, the, 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 the authors of the study found that kind of moral beliefs um, um, against drunk driving are, are kind of an effective source of you know, uh, not committing that crime. Right. Uh, but, you know, your question between enforcement of laws or moral values or, you know, uh, this sense of civic mindedness mm. or social responsibility, uh, I think they're both important, but you kind of have to move uh, in, in gradual steps or like in, in, in steps, which isn't to say that one is better than the other or, or that the former should take precedence over the latter but simply that you must have in, uh, the laws in place um, in order to set kind of the legal foundation for this feeling of moral obligation. Mm. So citing another study uh, in the US, uh, they look at the experience of combating DUI uh, and, and their experience shows that there is this gradual process which started from kind of general deterrence policies. Uh, these include, you know, uh, laws that punish uh, convicted drunk drivers. And then over time, this strategy kind of evolved to include efforts to tackle uh, kind of on the alcohol side. So this includes like minimum age laws to drinking. And then also through uh, mass communication campaigns. So these campaigns would include, uh, you know, general awareness, uh, hopefully it would result to kind of individual behavior changes such as, you know, the idea that you need to have uh, designated drivers when you go out. Uh, you know, the, these are things that come afterwards to actually having implemented the laws and the punishments uh, uh, for the crime. So, yeah, sorry, it's, it's kind of a non-answer. Uh, but uh, both of them are important, but yeah. one comes after another. Oh, so you have to have the law first, and then you have to educate everyone on civic mindedness, uh, civic mindedness, and social responsibility for it to work. Yes, mm -hmm. I mean, effectively, they should go hand in hand, but yeah. it, it, it's laws first, and then uh, the awareness. All right, let's get to this next article. Uh, turbulent parliament sitting triggers hashtag Masakita movement among the youth as they push to vote in a younger generation of more courteous, respectful lawmakers. Now, Azam, you are a young person yourself. Do you think it's a great idea to have more young people in parliament? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I think it's a, a fantastic idea to have uh, younger people in parliament. I mean, there, there's 
multiple ways to look at this. Uh, the first one that I immediately go to is is kind of the idea of representation. Uh, you know, the parliament is supposed to be a representation of your constituents, and the youth make up a particularly important segment of any constituency. Uh, so there must be some form of representation of the youth within parliament. But to say that it would be good to have the youth in parliament, it's not really an issue about age. Mm. It's really not age per se. It's about the ideas that the youth can bring in, the actions that, the motivations that drive the youth that would go into parliament. You know, let's face it, uh, the parliament is is filled with kind of like these old veteran politicians that have been through the game. At some point, we, we get the feeling that we need some fresh ideas. Yeah. We need some some fresh perspective. Uh, we need some new innovative ideas to tackle old problems. And we need new problems to be brought up in, in, in Parliament. It's not about age at all. In fact, if, en- if anything, it's about how well you do at your job. I mean, you, you can look at Said Sadiq, for example, during the, the Pakistan Harpan administration. You know, this guy is extraordinarily young. Uh, he was the youngest cabinet minister at 25. I'm 25. It's it's just so inspiring. You know, as as the youngest cabinet minister, he was able to get the the Undi 18 passed in parliament, which is a huge task, mind you. You know, this is a constitutional change to the voting age. Uh, he he did great things for uh, you know the the esports category. You know, a renewal of of stadiums as a very young minister he did a very good job but it's also not to say that like just because you're young that means you're going to be a a good member of Mm. parliament yeah i think it's ultimately down to who you are your character uh, your drive to make change and your effectiveness as a member of parliament but what do you think is more important to become a politician experience or knowledge i think experience can go both ways just because you've been in a certain position for a number of years doesn't mean that you're the most effective at that job. When it comes to kind of knowledge, I think really you need to have a foundation of knowledge to be an effective member of parliament. I think more importantly, when you have youth in parliament, you have new issues that come up, you have new ideas to tackle these issues. The youth, I think, tend to be more forward-looking, more innovative, and more open to change. So there, there are certain issues that are more pertinent to the youth that perhaps are not being discussed in Parliament. And a lot of uh, the youth have a different perspective than those that are within Parliament right now, those that are experienced and have you know, the many years of experience behind them. So we, we, we ultimately need more youth to have more representation and also to have uh, fresh perspectives in there. All right, next one. Former Prime Minister Tun Mahade actually lamented how the new speaker, Dato Azha Azizan Harun, seemed to side with the government by muting the microphones and not allowing input from the opposition bloc when they opposed his appointment. But Tan Sri Muhammad Arif actually says that he has no issue over his removal from the speaker's post as it was done in accordance with the constitution. Now, if this was done in now if his removal was in line with the constitution how is this so despite it being a precedent that has never happened anywhere else in the world uh so that's a good question um you know after the first day everyone was talking about how uh the things that transpired on the first day yeah. were 
completely unprecedented. And it's true, uh, there hasn't been an example of this except for uh, Trinidad and Tobago, I think. Yeah. And, and in that case, uh, it was extraordinary because the, the Speaker of the House was implicated in, in some corruption uh, uh, scandal or whatever, maybe. Um, so there was a due cause for the termination of the Speaker. Um, in this case, uh, it's, it's extraordinary because it's never happened, A. But secondly, uh, there was kind of uh, no uh, justification to, to the removal of the Speaker of the House. Yeah. I think that was the primary uh, kind of contestation that was put forth by the opposition. Um, I think altogether constitutionally, it was uh, definitely within the, the rules of the Constitution that it was able to be done. Um, uh, the, I think the rules were followed apart from the fact that, uh, you know, after the removal of a speaker and and the 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 introduction of a new one, there's supposed to be kind of a nomination process, yeah, and and kind of a, a voting process by the parliament to uh, nominate a new speaker to fill that role. And in this instance, there was kind of none of that happening, uh, none of this democratic checks and balances by the parliament um, for kind of uh, to, to check against the executive and, and the ruling government from kind of dominating this democratic platform, mm. this, this parliamentary debate platform. And I think that is really the conflict here. Uh, the sense that democratic institutions within the parliament itself are being eroded because of uh, we're seeing this kind of like growing executive power from the Pakata National, uh, sorry, uh, the Prikata the, the Pri National uh, government kind of introducing their own Speaker of the House, essentially, without any formal vote. Um, obviously, they, they, they kind of uh, uh, justified this with the fact that there was no other alternative to, to the, the, the Speaker nominations, so there was no need for a vote. But again, all these things have transpired to, to, to the weakening of democratic institutions. And I think uh, if, if this is kind of the way that things are going in Parliament, it's, it's definitely uh, not a hopeful sign. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. But I mean, now that that's done, for... Any new appointment, I think there will always be some form of resistance, right? But what should new Speaker Dato Azha Harun do in order to gain the trust and support of all parliament members? Mm. So, um, I think ultimately, uh, it, it really matters on, on the neutrality of the Speaker of the House. Uh, really, their job as speaker is to kind of act as a, a referee to the parliamentary debates, mm. you know, uh, you need a referee uh, is neutral. If, if there is any bias within the referee, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be seen as an unfair game. So in this sense, what's really important moving forward is that uh, speaker art Harlan needs to be neutral, needs to kind of, 
act in a way to dismiss all these claims that he is an extension of the executive branch. So that's one thing. Mm. I, I think that's the main job of the, the speaker. And if that were not to be upheld, then it would uh, uh, kind of point in the direction that, yes, this was an, uh, an extension of the executive branch. Yes, this was a domination of the, the Prikata National in Parliament. Um, another thing is to kind of go above and beyond the job of the Speaker of the House is to uh, continue the parliamentary reforms that were already being rolled out by the previous Speaker. Um, from our perspective, uh, the parliamentary reforms uh, are a very important aspect of strengthening uh, democratic institutions within the parliament. So uh, we really hope that these, these kind of reforms are being uh, continued. Uh, one very important example is the, the parliamentary select committees that were um, being strengthened under the previous speaker. And hopefully, we really hope that uh, these reforms uh, continue moving forward. Um, you know, this is to just go above and beyond what is needed from the Speaker of the House, this is to increase democratic institutions. This is to essentially make Parliament better. Uh, and, and I think if these things were done, then it would definitely spin a more positive light to this, this uh, Speaker uh, you know, being sacked and a new one coming in. Azam, we're almost one week into our first full parliament sitting with the Perikata National New Government. Uh, and a common issue with the session is how questions being asked are actually left unanswered. So, in your opinion, are the newly sworn-in ministers ill-equipped to answer these questions despite being in the role now for over 100 days? Yeah. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to attest it or, or make any claims that, that anyone is ill-equipped or, or not ready. I will say, though, that the minister who's been appointed needs to know what their ministry is doing. I think that's just a very fair expectation. Uh, they should be able to answer questions with knowledge because, you know, they, they need to know what their ministry is doing. This this is the job of the minister to, to question whether they're well equipped to answer the, the question. You know, these questions that are posed in Parliament are provided ahead of time. Of course, the, the answers and the responses have also been prepared, you know, either by the minister or by the officer themselves beforehand. But in the case that the, the prepared responses are not satisfactory, uh, it needs to be within the ability of the minister themselves to be able to answer the questions at hand without anything being prepared. You know, they need to have knowledge of the question, of the topic, of, of the things that are being done within their ministry. This is the importance of having well-appointed ministers, individuals who didn't get their position because of their political background, how, how much support they have. We need to appoint ministers that are technocrats with technical expertise on the subject of their ministry. Mm. I, I think this is the, the purpose of having a, a well-suited cabinet to guide the government uh, in, in their actions. Not all ministers are perfect. And, and you said that it, it's only been 100 days, but I think that it's only been 100 days. Yeah. It's not easy being a minister. It's not easy managing 
an entire ministry with with an entire portfolio to to know every in and out of every issue it's it's a tough job mm. but at the very minimum i think there needs to be a stable foundation of knowledge on the subject now have you been um observing the parliament for the past couple of days i have what were some of your observations i'm sure how everyone feels it's quite a circus a lot of hoo-ha here and there you know but th- this is this is parliament i think uh this is how it's always been it's it's kind of like a, a theatrical thing but it, it's been a, a test of many things that we have been trying to look at for the last couple of months 